Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So in this first episode of Future Food, I speak to David Friedberg, the CEO and founder of the Climate Corporation, which was one of the first ag tech startups to reach unicorn status after Monsanto acquired it for a billion dollars in 2013. And it was really this deal that put agri-food tech on the map and encouraged other entrepreneurs and investors to get into this space. In this episode, we hear for the first time about the Production Board, which is David's new investment company that is investing across the value chain in food and agriculture. It's so inspiring to hear David's worldview of the food system, and we really cover everything in this episode, from robotic restaurants to quinoa farming. And I think this makes it a great starting point for newbies to the food tech and ag tech industry. So I hope you enjoy this first and pretty special instalment of Future Food. Thank you so much, David Freeberg, for joining me on the podcast today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So before we dig in a bit into your background and what you're up to now, I would love it if you could paint a picture of what you think the future food system will look like in 2050. Yeah, I think um, 2050 is a long time away and it's a it's a short time away um, in the in the span of uh, kind of how food systems evolve, I'd say it's probably a, a, a shorter time away. It takes a long time for uh, technologies and markets to kind of converge when it comes to the kind of multi-faceted systems that produce our food. So, um, you know, I, I would say that um, there are some opportunities that are pretty relevant in the very near term that, that are going to kind of affect the system, the systems of food production, but they're, um, you know, they're going to take some time to be realized. So what may be kind of obvious today is, is 30 years out from, from being kind of incorporated. Um, so some of the things that I think are um, kind of going to drive change, there's, there's going to be um, a greater kind of distribution and specialization in the production of the components of food. Um, if you think about the historical context, you grew a vegetable or a plant in a field and then ate that plant and it had a number of macro and micronutrients and there would be some things that were missing from it um, and you may not necessarily get the right ratio of, nutri- of target nutrients um, in that plant and then you would eat it, and then you would have to go eat another plant uh, to kind of balance out your diet and get the rest of the nutrients you needed. Um, But it turns out that using, you know, chemistry and bioengineering and other kind of production techniques, we've been able to get very, very good at cost-effectively producing each of the individual components of nutrition and flavor, and uh, do so in a way that's more sustainable, meaning it takes less energy and has less of a permanent effect on kind of environmental factors to produce it um, and lower cost, so it's a better economics. Um, so as an example of that, um, you know, historically we've seen microbes that are used to make, uh, um, to make beer and wine, right? You, you take yeast and you feed it sugar water and it, it, it kind of secretes ethanol. 
um, you know, it's possible to use microbes to make um, a number of other compounds uh, to make um, proteins, for example. And so rather than grow an entire cow, why not just make the specific proteins you want to get out of the cow and then, you know, reconstitute them into a food form that consumers are going to love and that feels um, like it's, uh, it's tasty, it's, it's more affordable, it's more available to everyone. Um, and the same is true for kind of, you know, the chemistry that's associated with producing micronutrients, vitamins and, and whatnot. Um, so I think, you know, historically, we've kind of used these whole food food systems where you kind of produce an entire food source, but it isn't necessarily complete. And by specializing and, and getting very good at making things in a very kind of specific way, um, you know, we can make a complete food program available, a complete food source available at a much lower cost, and, you know, kind of more sustainably uh, to people. So there's a number of techniques that are being developed to do that. Um, You're talking about, you know, lab-grown, lab-grown meats, um, cultured egg yolks, um, and those kind of ingredients, I guess, is where we're seeing a lot of the innovation taking place now. Yeah, I mean, I think um, exactly. That's, that's one facet of it. Um, you know, just over the last 50 years, we've seen a tremendous ingenuity in, for example, um, taking soybeans, which are an incredibly energy efficient source of protein, and turning them into a number of different product, food products that ultimately, um, you know, can kind of deliver value to consumers, it's both nutritional value and kind of economic value and taste value. And so, um, you know, there's a uh, there's kind of been this spectrum of things that have happened from, you know, food chemistry and food science and sensory science all the way through to kind of bioengineering on that, that far end of the spectrum where we're seeing these lab grown and cultured meats and whatnot. Um, and that trend is kind of all, all of these um, disciplines are kind of evolving. Uh, the chemistry discipline, under, understanding what molecules contribute to flavor, what molecules contribute to nutrients, uh, you know, what, what, what nutrients can be kind of isolated and, and produced um, in isolation. So there's a lot of really interesting kind of evolution that's happening. Uh, the, the, the purist uh, will say, well, um, that's not whole food. That's not healthy. That's not good for, for people on the planet. But I do think that there is kind of an evolution towards this, um, this space where you end up actually making what is truly healthy and better for the planet uh, by being very smart about how you make everything. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff being done. Um, I also think it's, it's unlikely, and, and as you kind of get specialization in kind of production, there's also specialization in distribution. So all the different components of how food is assembled and made and delivered to people um, is, you know, software, hardware engineering, it's kind of automating a lot of these steps. So I, I don't think it's likely that, um, you know, there's, there's a primary motivation to have a kitchen in every home in 30 years. Um, if, if you have effectively on demand under five minute availability of any food product, hot, cold, uh, freshly prepared, um, within minutes of your home, you know, why would you need a kitchen at home? Um, and it actually makes economic sense where you could produce all of those goods nearby. You know, you have certain parts of it, as I mentioned, kind of produced centrally where, you know, certain proteins are made and carbohydrates are made and nutrients are made. And then how they're assembled into your final food product can be done nearby your house. And you can end up with a, you know, with a delicious, 
you know, what feels like a freshly cooked, freshly prepared meal for a fraction of the cost of what it would cost you to make it yourself. And you don't need to have, you know, one third of your, you know, apartment or home dedicated to, to cooking and storing food. And then there's definitely this trend of, of personalization on food. So rather than make traditionally food has been made as product. So, you know, here's a tomato and everyone eats a tomato. But what if you had a tomato and I had a tomato that was different for each of us? Or, you know, you had a, a shake or a smoothie that had a bunch of nutrients in it that were personalized to my genes and my health factors and the things I'm concerned about. And I could actually eat for my, uh, for my target objectives. And so rather than just kind of scouring the world of food products, I'm really just specifically stating my intention around, hey, look, I've got these genes and I've got these health issues right now and I've got these health objectives. And, you know, there can be a system that can deliver to you a personalized food product, um, whether it be a sandwich or a smoothie or a salad with a bunch of micro and macronutrients that are built and perhaps probiotics and other organisms that, that are beneficial to you that are built into it um, that are personalized to you. So I, I don't think that I think we're moving away from a productized world. You know, we're seeing this already in CPG, where in the last 30 years, we've moved from having a handful of big brand products to what looks a lot more like tribalism, you know, this fragmentation of brands where the microbreweries are taking over the Budweiser's of the world. Um, and the same is true of all other kind of CPG brand categories. If you take that to its logical extreme, everyone's getting their product. Everyone's getting their version of food. Everyone's getting their personalized food to, 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 to meet their own taste preferences and their own health, health objectives and their own genes. So, um, the food system, whatever it looks like, whether it's a bunch of robots showing up at my door bringing me, me every meal or a drone that drops it off through my roof or just a, a, you know, a, a box in my kitchen that prints all my food, um, will ultimately be delivering food personalized to me, not, to, uh, not, not taking a bunch of products off a shelf and I'm kind of getting half what I really need and the other person's getting half what they really need and neither of those, you know, there's some overlap, but they're not ideal. Um, so I do think that there's a big trend in personalization and kind of this notion of branded categorization of food products is going to diminish over the next 30 years. Mm, very interesting. And the idea of having no kitchen or living without cooking at home. I live in New York. That sounds like a sort of New Yorker's life um, and definitely was before I had uh, children. But then at that point, um, I wanted to cook my own food for my baby. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Obviously, if that is the world that we see where you're going to get a lot of your food delivered and personalized to you, there's going to need to be an element of trust in the creators of those food. Um, you know, and, and the, the sustainability credentials around something like lab-grown meat, um, you know, are very important. But how do people get around the trust factor of something that probably sounds a bit scary? It's been grown in a laboratory or an algorithm has decided that this is the right food for you and your baby to be eating. How do you think we get around that sort of, um, yeah, reputation and trust? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're, 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 at, yeah, we're at point A, we're going to point B. I think there's a hundred ways to get there and we have to take the way that earns trust because otherwise it just doesn't work. So, you know, how, how we do that, I think, look, when, when the internet um, first allowed you to buy stuff, I remember when I first started using the internet, there were times when I was nervous to put in my, uh, my debit card number to buy stuff because I was afraid, you know, why the heck would I put my credit card number into the internet? It's going to get stolen. I, I don't trust it. And this was a big issue with, with early e-commerce adoption on the internet if people didn't trust it they didn't know it and 
it took a while. And then, you know, you made your first purchase. And after you made your first purchase, your friends made the purchase. And suddenly the convenience and the benefits of it started to be realized. And it took a long time. But all of a sudden, you know, it hit a tipping point, And now everyone has no problem putting their credit card in and buying everything online. Um, you know, that, that, is, that is the case with technology, um, that there is a concern. And, and there will be mistakes. And there will be violations of the trust. And there will be damage along the way. Um, but as we take those steps, um, as people start to kind of realize the benefits, and it may be slow, it may be fast, there, there will be, you know, uh, stops and starts, <laughs> it will accelerate, and then it will slam on the brakes. Um, and so I can't really answer that question. I can just say, like, at a high level, that I don't think it's too dissimilar from other technologies affecting how humans live. Um, and, you know, pr provided that there is kind of you know, measurable, known kind of understanding of, uh, you know, uh, the, the environmental benefits, the health benefits, the sustainability of it, the cost of it, and it's improving along all those axes, it's only a matter of time before it succeeds. And, and you know, the path it takes to get there is, is kind of the, 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 the billion-dollar question. Right, exactly. Well, we might come back to this as we talk about your work in the agriculture industry specifically. Um, but yeah, would love to talk now about your time with the Climate Corporation, which you founded. Um, it was called Weatherbill in the beginning. Is that right? What year was that? Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was my brilliant naming scheme. I, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever named a company where the original name stuck. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. Weatherbill, because you would, someone had to pay the weather bill. And I was able to buy the domain name for like 20 bucks from a guy named Bill who was really into the weather. And <laughs> really? he had this, this domain name. Yeah. And he had like oh. a, a band. Um, I think you can probably see it on the Internet Archive. Um, oh, fantastic. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So I bought, I bought that domain name for nothing. So that, that was the idea behind the name. Yeah. And then we renamed it Climate Corporation, I think, in 2010, I want to say. Okay. Great. And then, um, you know, for our listeners who aren't aware, um, you sold the Climate Corporation to Monsanto for nearly a billion dollars in 2013. And with that deal, you pretty much created the ag tech investment market. So I think I need to thank you. As without that deal, I might have been out of a job or writing about a super, yeah. super boring financial market. So, um, yeah, we're all indebted to you for that. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> so thank you. And But, you know, agriculture wasn't the sole focus, was it, in the beginning? I'm just interested to know when you actually took that focus on agriculture. Yeah, no, the original idea was we would use, we would simulate, so we got a bunch of historical weather data. We would use the historical weather data to, to estimate the probability of specific weather events occurring in the future. And based on those probabilities, we could price insurance against certain weather events. So you could go to our website and say, I want to buy insurance in case it rains on this particular day because I'm holding an outdoor festival or, or event or I'm a golf course and every day it rains, I'm shutting down my golf course or I'm a ski resort. And when it doesn't snow enough, I'm going to lose revenue because people won't show up to my ski resort or I'm a coffee shop. And if it's a really nice uh, sunny day, people don't hang out in the coffee shop as much and my sales go down. So we kind of had this one-size-fits-all weather insurance uh, concept where you could go to our website, type in the weather events, get a price for insurance, and then we would sell you the insurance online, and we would monitor the weather. And if the weather was, as you kind of insured against, we would send you a check. So that was kind of our original concept, and we launched that in January of 2007 and started selling this stuff online and, you know, and starts of kind of finding different customer bases that were interested in it 
we had everyone for, you know, I've been to probably every trade show you can imagine, the Car Wash Association, Golf Course Owners Association. Um, you know, uh, we went to a bunch of ag expos and we started learning about farming. And uh, one of our early biz dev guys um, met with the citrus packers here in California and ended up uh, doing a deal where we insured against uh, freezing temperatures that would cause a freeze of the citrus crop in California because the citrus packers couldn't buy crop insurance. And, you know, then we started doing more with the actual citrus growers. And one thing led to another, and we just found that farmers were the best fit for this concept. They uh, have their entire balance sheet exposed to the weather each year. Um, farmers aren't generally going to be very geographically diversified, so bad weather hits them pretty hard. And they have, you know, um, you know, just one season to get wiped out. They don't have a big balance sheet relative to the risk that they're taking each year. They put their typically their entire life savings into their farming operation at the start of the year and hopefully make a little bit of a return by the end of the year. Um, and so, you know, we just uh, found all these different iterations of how we could craft our weather insurance products for farmers and uh, decided to focus the company around agriculture beginning in 2009. And at that point, you know, we really tried to build products for farmers. So rather than just having a website where you could type in the weather events and get a quote for a custom insurance policy, we started kind of trying to make different services, different products that met the different needs of farming. In order to do that, we had to learn a little bit more about how the weather affected agriculture, about how the weather affected certain types of farmers and certain types of operations. And so we started to learn, you know, kind of doing market research and market understanding and diligence. And in that process, we, um, we got rather deep into um, kind of understanding the agronomic so, so from the start of the season to the end of the season, what's happening with the plant in the field? What's the farmer doing? How does the weather affect that? And it turns out that there's a lot of data that you could use to inform that understanding. So we started sourcing all sorts of data sets that weren't publicly available at the time. Uh, they were, we did FOIA requests and we scoured uh, you know, databases that, that were locked up and we paid for certain sets of data. And we started to build these models that related all the variables of farming together the weather, what the farmer did, what type of soil he had, what kind of seed he planted, when he planted, what kind of yield he got, what the satellite imagery showed. And all of these different data sets can be kind of used to predict how these variables interact with one another. And that allowed us to ultimately make these weather insurance products really finely tuned for specific um, farmer's needs. So the farmer could tell us when he was planning to plant, how many seeds per acre, what type of uh, relative maturity of the plant, and we could estimate more accurately how different weather events would drive the yield outcome at the end of the season. And so that's, that, that's what we called our total weather insurance product, and we were selling that to corn and soybean and cotton, sorry, corn, soybean, winter wheat, and spring wheat growers and, and sorghum growers. And it covered all the weather events during the growing season that we believed were going to affect yield. And the farmer would tell us a little bit about some of his farming operation, where he was farming. We had kind of a Zillow map for agriculture. You could click on your, your, your field profile, and we would tell you the soil type and estimate the slope of your field and so on. Anyway, all of the data that we were presenting in our insurance product turned out to be very useful. The farmers were buying insurance and logging into our website every day just to get access to the data. What's your estimated soil moisture? What's your estimated yield? What's your estimated harvest date? So we kind of had this aha moment or a series of aha moments that the data and analytics that we were providing the farmers were as useful, if not more useful, than the core insurance we were offering them. 
And, you know, we, we began um, kind of focusing around just making these software tools as a standalone service for the farmers, where in addition to kind of just informing them, we could actually turn that equation around and make recommendations about what they could do to drive better outcomes, how many seeds per acre, when to plant, um, et cetera. So, so that's kind of... And so you're watching their journey when they logged in. You were watching what they were, what they were doing online when they were logging in. And seeing that it was yeah exactly in addition to kind of customer interviews and spending time with them in person and getting personal feedback about what's working and what's not and you know when you're trying to do a lot of things at once there's a lot that's not working um you very quickly kind of realize you know what's not working and why and what is working and where things are resonating um and you know we kind of evolved the product you know that's interesting because there is a lot of talk in the industry about push and pull of different services and and um, entrepreneurs creating the next app for farmers and farmers don't necessarily want it. But so I'm, it's really interesting that actually it was the farmer's behavior that was driving your decision to develop the service into those uh, data-driven decision-making, you know, tools or decision um, support tools. Yeah, and I, I would say that there's, there's two ways to frame this kind of product discovery process. One is ask your customers what they want and build it for them. That doesn't always succeed. I think the more successful path is to ask your customer what the biggest problem is that they're facing that we're not solving for, and then innovate a way to solve for that. Um, because you're typically going to do a better job kind of innovating than your customer will tell you because they're going to be informed by what they've seen in the past, whereas you're going to be trying to build a better solution for the future. So, um, you know, learning what's not working and where they're still facing big problems, I would say, is the framing of trying to think about how do you innovate new features and new solutions going forward. And then just a final question about Climate Corp. What was the um, the biggest challenge for adoption? Well, you know, um, there's a couple. It's less true than it is today, but generally true. Um, number one is there's kind of this distrust when, um, you know, Keep in mind, farmers kind of largely def- skipped the desktop computer revolution, right? They, they, they weren't like running their businesses and doing their day-to-day activities on a desktop computer like knowledge workers in other industries were mostly in the 90s and early 2000s um, as the Internet kind of sprung up and everyone had computers and it changed the way everyone worked in every industry. Um, so farmers really kind of came of age on the Internet um, with mobile phones and the penetration of 3G networks into rural areas. And that started, I would say, around the, the mid-2000s, 2008. Uh, 2008 or so is when mobile phones really kind of took off in these rural areas, and the 3G networks really lit up. If you look at these old maps of AT&T and Verizon coverage zones, you'll see that the rural areas in the United States in particular really kind of took off around 2008. And um, so suddenly farmers kind of came online. So in the context of that, farmers aren't used to computers telling them what's what. <laughs> and um, this, is, this is a foreign concept that I can just take a, 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 a phone out of my pocket, at least it was 10 years ago, but I could take a phone out of my pocket and it can tell me all of this stuff about my farming operation. Like I farmed this land for three generations now. My family's farmed this land for three generations now. We know this land better than anyone. We have a better recollection of the weather. We know how different factors affect outcomes better than anyone. So to have my phone in my pocket be able to tell me better than I know what is and isn't going to work on my farm doesn't really resonate. Uh, I, I don't really believe it. So there's 
and you know that's certainly less the case today. But to some extent, this idea that technology can kind of uh, then the human, um, the human ingenuity and human experience uh, is a is a very tough pill to swallow. Right. Even though they were actually looking at, you know, they were actually engaging themselves, but I guess maybe without realizing that they were using technology while they were doing that. Yeah. And, some, and in, in some cases, in some cases, if you present a decision to them, like don't apply nitrogen when they otherwise would be applying nitrogen, for example, and the farmers kind of de facto is, you know, I want to be safe. I want to make sure I have enough nitrogen in my field that my plants can reach 200 bushel yield. Um, they're going to apply that nitrogen because that's kind of what they're historically used to. If the software is telling them don't apply nitrogen, that's the moment where I'm going to make the decision that I'm going to go with my gut and not go with the software. And so, you know, you don't really get full adoption, right? Adoption is like on a spectrum. And I'm not really, make, I'm not really making that decision in that moment. It turns out that could have been the highest ROI decision you could have made that season. Because all, you know, 30, 40, 50% of that nitrogen is going to wash away or it's just going to sit in the field and volatilize during the winter or whatever's going to happen. So, um, so that's kind of the big, the big step change is like, you know, what point do they actually change their gut instinct, um, change a decision they otherwise would have made into a different one using software as the informing guide. And then I think the other kind of big challenge as, as it is with any industry, when it comes to kind of generally automation is if software is doing a lot of the things that the farmer has historically been the point of value creation around, you're really threatening the farmer's role. Um, you know, if, if the farmer is being told when to apply nitrogen and how to apply nitrogen by an iPhone, um, the farmer's questioning, well, what am I doing here? Right? And then I've got this big automated piece of equipment that's going through the field and doing all the work. Um, th there's something kind of very alarming in general about technology that, um, you know, someone who's doing a job is being presented with their replacement or what they perceive to be their replacement. Um, and so that's also a big kind of challenge with adoption in general with technologies and in particular in agriculture, because it's, you know, there's, there's, there's these big step changes, but you know, this, this was true in when the plow came out, it was true when the tractor came out, it was, uh, it's been true in a number of kind of step changes in technology and agriculture. Um, and I think that the role of the farmer evolved. Um, and the opportunity for the farmer shifts, um, but it is certainly not what it was yesterday. Uh, the role is certainly not what it was yesterday, and these technologies kind of highlight that fact. Um, and so there, there is a challenge with respect to adoption. Now, I will also say that it could be the case that adoption is, um, is more likely to occur with next generation's farmers. Those who do adopt are likely going to be more successful. Th those who do adopt technologies that create advantages for them are likely going to be more successful than those who don't. And so not everyone, it's not like go to your market and everyone should adopt it. It's about who are going to be the right kinds of folks to be the next generation market. And those are the folks for whom adoption is most critical and for you, whom you have to get the product right for. Um, because that's ultimately where success is going to lie. It's not about the folks who are never going to adopt and they want to use last year's technology and they're never going to do, do anything new. Those folks might end up not being successful in 30 years and you know they might be outpaced in terms of yield and profitability by the guys that are adopting new technology so um so i, I think that's that it, it's, it's an important point that there, there is still adoption challenges but you know the the, the adoption if the, the technology works 
the adoption inevitably will be done by those who will evolve into kind of the successful leaders of tomorrow. So it's been several years since the big deal. Um, what have you been up to since then? What is the production board? It's five, five years today since we announced the sale of five Climate to Monsanto. Yeah, it's our five-year wow. acquisition announcement because I'm having dinner with our, uh, our old uh, exec team tonight. We were, we said, hey, you Fantastic. know, we're <laughs> over email. Everyone's in different places now, but we're all grabbing dinner tonight, and we realized it's our five-year oh, anniversary. So, yeah, um, I set up this company uh, called the Production Board. It's uh, it's effectively a, an, a, uh, an investment holding company, so uh, has some capital in it that we've uh, used to um, make uh, investments and and primarily incubate, uh, starting uh, new companies in. Um, broadly kind of uh, technology solutions in food and agriculture. Um, and so, you know, we have a team of folks that, that work on um, uh, research, uh, thesis development, you know, what, what's kind of a core thesis that, that belief that we might have in terms of where technology and markets intersect. And then, you know, building business concepts and, um, and or making an investment around that thesis. Um, and so the production board is, is, is the company through which we do that. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a relatively small team at production board, but then at, at our different companies uh, underneath the production board where we own our, our equity stakes in those companies, obviously is where all the work gets done. Um, and so we have uh, a handful of companies that are, uh, um, that are active and some new ones that we're working on. Oh, fantastic. And um, why did you decide to structure it as a holding company as opposed to a fund? I don't know. I, you know, you start a fund and start collecting fees it just doesn't seem like a great alignment of interest. <laughs> so, I've been an investor in a bunch of funds and I find that they're, they make more money on fees than they make for their investors. Um, so, you know, anyway, it, for, for me, it was just, I, I put some capital in of my own, my own money and, and then some other folks that, that were like-minded and interested uh, invested as well with me. And the idea was, um, you know, this isn't meant to be kind of an asset management business where we're raising capital and earning fees on managing your capital and then returning it to you once we've made our investments and sold them. Uh, this is more about there's a persistent, meaning for the rest of our lives, opportunity to, you know, realize new technologies that can affect positive outcomes in food and agriculture. And it's such a broad set of opportunities. It's such a long range set of opportunities. There's so much opportunity and there will be for generations to come that there's no reason to put a time horizon on it and say, hey, let's just do this for five to seven years and then we're done, that we can actually just make it um, a permanent vehicle is what it's called. So, you know, the capital goes in and it just stays there and we'll make investments. We'll start companies if they go public or if they get sold or, or they generate profits and do dividends, you know, we can take that money and reinvest it and do new stuff because there's always going to be more opportunity to create new technology to further improve our ability to convert molecules for human consumption. Um, and that's kind of ultimately what the, uh, you know, what the intention will be. Yeah, fantastic. Can you share a few details of some of your investments? Yeah, we, so, you know, one of our theses was that, uh, you know, we believe that, um, about 40% of, of uh, human calories, sorry, about 50% of human calories and about 40% of acres are farmed to uh, rice and wheat. 
and then about 40% of acres are farmed to corn and soybeans um, of farmed acres. Uh, and, you know, we get about 10% of our calories from animal proteins, uh, which is where most of those corn and soybeans go. Um, and so I kind of looked at the energy efficiency in terms of water and nitrogen um, and bioavailable protein out. And quinoa kind of rose to the top of the list as a, as a protein source. And I got really interested in quinoa also as an alternative to rice and wheat. So, you know, it's more energy efficient than both. It's complete protein. It has lysine. It's very bioavailable as a protein source. So I was just generally enamored with quinoa as a, as a crop. And we only grow 300,000 acres of it globally out of, you know, 2 billion plus farmed acres. Um, so I started looking for a place to grow quinoa and, uh, went all over the United States, and it turns out there's always better economics to grow another crop besides quinoa. Anyway, we found a small operation up in Canada. Uh, Canadian prairies are about 45 million acres. These guys were growing on about 1,000 or 1,500 acres. This quinoa varietal they had uh, bred to succeed in the Canadian prairies, and they were very successful doing it. And some of the farmers they were working with were getting over 2,000 pounds of, of yield per acre. So you do the unit economic analysis on that, it turns out you could eventually foresee an opportunity where you can get quinoa to be as affordable as rice. So we started a company called Norquin, bought the assets of that business in Canada, and we're um, you know, actively growing quinoa and trying to make it as affordable as rice and making an alternative to rice and potato and starches uh, as an ingredient, and also making a much more affordable whole grain alternative um, with quinoa. So we really want to try and make quinoa as ubiquitous as rice and as affordable as rice. Um, so that company is called Norquin, and it's uh, about 70-30 split between Peru and Bolivia. Um, so there's very little outside of Peru and Bolivia. It's, it's an emerging kind of crop in some markets, but really never more than a couple dozen or a couple hundred acres. Um, so our objective is to really make it, uh, make it a, a staple crop uh, in that it can deliver, um, you know, in terms of water use and nitrogen use, uh, much more uh, complete and bioavailable protein. Um, it can be an alternative to rice and to rice and wheat. So, um, so that's kind of our objective with uh, with Norquin. Okay, and th- so that's a, that's a farming production business. Do you have any technology investments as well? Yeah, we have a plant breeding operation in Saskatoon. So we've actually <laughs> surprisingly found over two thousand um, germplasm samples of quinoa that we're uh, crossbreeding and, and trying to uh, breed for certain traits. Uh, uh, for success to try and achieve these economic objectives we have for the business um, in uh, in Saskatoon. So we have a plant breeding operation, and then we do uh, agronomic services with the growers. So we partner with growers, we give them the seed, and then we work with them on being successful with growing the quinoa in the field. And, you know, the contract uh, is that we're buying the quinoa from them at a fixed price per pound. So our objective is to get their yield up, so they're making more profit per acre, which is what they ultimately care about, while getting our price per pound down. So we can compete with rice and wheat and other, um, you know, ingredient sources in the markets that we're selling into. Um, so that's, you know, it's not as cool as iPad-based software, I guess. But, um, you know, we think <laughs> there's, there's some real technology and kind of the plant breeding and the agronomic services that go mm-hmm. on and trying to make this work. And then we've got a production facility up in Canada. Um, then we partnered with a group uh, called Clara Foods. Um, we're... Uh, bioengineering microorganisms to uh, produce animal proteins. So uh, Clara, you know, they're, they're known publicly for kind of making uh, egg proteins or, you know, trying to make uh, replace eggs 
with uh, with uh, this yeast derived um, uh, protein source. Um, so we, you know, do this recombinant DNA technology where we take the DNA from chickens and put it into yeast, and then the yeast can actually, you know, eat a bunch of sugar water and spit out um, chicken proteins. Um, in this case, the proteins you'll find in eggs. Um, but broadly speaking, this goes back to kind of one of my kind of points earlier. We, we believe, and we have a, a core thesis around protein production. If you look at the energy efficiency of a yeast, um, it is, um, or, you know, generally some sort of microorganism in comparison to kind of a, 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 a bigger organism, it's going to be much more energy efficient than producing a target molecule uh, like a protein. So uh, chickens, for example, right, there's a lot of energy used in making feathers and walking around and creating heat and clucking. Um, and so the energy efficiency of a chicken on an absolute basis isn't that great. Uh, a microorganism that has had chicken DNA added to it can actually make those same proteins that the chicken is making without making feathers and clucking and creating all this heat and walking around. And so theoretically, you should be able to make chicken eggs for a third the price of what it costs to make them with chickens. And the same is true broadly for other animal proteins. If you can get microorganisms to express those proteins, they should be more energy efficient at expressing those proteins than the animal system from which that protein production was derived in the first place. Um, so, so we have a big belief that, um, you know, let's say all the macro trends are true and population is going to grow and population is going to get wealthier and population is going to want more protein and so on and so forth, that this can become a very sustainable, low-cost source of protein um, for humans that, uh, you know, can be identical not just mimic and not just be sort of like and taste good and so on, but be identical to the proteins that they would be buying that are these animal derived proteins by simply engineering the animal DNA into the microorganism to express those proteins. Um, so Clara is our, our bet in that area. And, um, you know, it's a team that's working generally on trying to make animal proteins using a, a microorganism expression system. Um, then we have a company called ITSA, uh, which we started up. Uh, ITSA was kind of the flip side to the coin of trying to uh, – the business has evolved quite a bit, but originally the concept behind ITSA was to try and um, get consumers to love eating quinoa. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, I just wanted to make a quinoa bowl restaurant, and so the idea was we could, um, you know, look at the things that people care about when they go to a restaurant and what's going to make them happy. It turns out taste, price, and speed – in that order, um, are what matters. So we tried to use hardware and software to redesign how a restaurant operates to try and make it much faster and much more affordable, take out a lot of the labor costs. Why, why should I stand in line and then tell a person what I want to eat only to have them type it in on a screen in front of them? I could, I could just type in on a screen what I want to eat. So why not just make a mobile app and put a bunch of kiosks in the store and get rid of the people? Um, and then that kind of parallelizes the ordering. And then if you think of the back of house, right now everything is serialized in the back of house as well. You know, we serialize ordering where you go one at a time to a counter and you order. And then we make one meal or one, you know, bowl at a time in the back, like they do at Chipotle today or at Starbucks. So why not take multiple lines in the back and let them work in parallel? So you could increase the throughput of production and then use a, a parallelized delivery system. So we created this cubby idea where you could actually put up to 24 meals out at the same time, and it could be really elegant and beautiful and create a great consumer experience um, in being able to get the food. 
it doesn't have to be, oh my God, there's all these drinks piled up on one counter and they're all falling over each other. This is super messy and nasty, or I got to go ask the person for my food and they're yelling at me. Um, why not just use hardware and software to make a really elegant, simple, and beautiful experience? So by parallelizing ordering, production, and delivery, we were able to massively increase the throughput of the restaurant, massively reduce the labor as a percentage of revenue, and create a great customer experience, and the consumer would get their food in less than 90 seconds from the time they showed up to the time they were walking out. And so that was kind of our concept with all the design work we did at Eatsa and all this hardware and software engineering we did. And since that launch, Eatsa has evolved into a, um, you know, a technology business that's taking these technology components now and making them available to other restaurant chains to help them run more effectively. Um, so Eatsa's launched, I believe, with uh, two chains now. And uh, I, I don't have any announcements to share, but there will be a, a number of announcements over the coming quarters uh, as Eatsa rolls this out with other partners. Um, and you'll see other restaurant chains start to use the Eatsa technology. So we, you know, we incubated that company and uh, subsequently the company, you know, raised money from other investors. Uh, we've made it a early investment and, and participated significantly uh, as an investor in Soylent, um, which is the kind of complete nutrition beverage company. Um, and we're very excited by the mission of, you know, trying to make complete nutrition as affordable as possible. Rob Reinhardt, the founder there, always spoke about nutrition, uh, complete nutrition should be as ubiquitous as water. You know, can we just make it available and make it affordable and everyone has access to complete nutrition. So in those moments where it's not about replacing food, but it's those moments where there's an absence of good, healthy food, uh, at least you have access to nutrition. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we sit on the board there and pretty active. And then we have a couple other projects that we're in kind of startup phase on that I don't think we're ready to kind of publicly announce. Uh, there's three other companies that we'll share more of in the, probably in the next uh, couple of months here. Okay. And so I've got a few follow-ups here. Um, on Eatsa, what's interesting there is we actually just put out a China startup report and looked at um, you know which types of agri-food startups are getting funding and innovating in China. And there's a big trend around unmanned stores um, and that and restaurants as well. Um, and that idea of taking the sort of personal server out of the equation. But it's interesting that in the US, um, that's not such a trend. Obviously, it's something that you're working on. Do you have any thoughts on why it might be that um, someone like China, where actually, you know, they're more behind in other agri-food innovations, is, you know, looking um, it's so ahead of the times in terms of that sort of convenient unmanned um, food access? There's a couple of reasons. One, the market is huge. Two, the, um, the, the price sensitivity is much higher there. So you have a very, very, very large market that cares about the difference between a $3 meal and a $3.50 meal um, on the order of hundreds of millions of people that care about that difference. So um, there, there is an accelerated, uh, there is a kind of increased demand to accelerate that change uh, from 3.50 to 3, um, and the market will be there to realize it. In the U.S., we're generally better off. You know, we generally have higher income per capita, and we spend more per meal per capita than um, Chinese can afford to spend, um, and so on. Um, there's uh, lower regulatory barriers in China. So uh, some of the on-demand delivery services, uh, Elume and Meituan, uh, succeeded in a way that companies in the U.S. could not succeed in doing um, home-prepared meal delivery. So there's a lot of kind of moms and grandmas that will make food in a kitchen and they will be delivered from that mom's kitchen 
down the road to someone's house. In the U.S., you have to have a restaurant license and you have to have health and safety inspections. And there's a lot of rules and regs that that um, that were much more stringent on for safety in the U.S. than there is in China. So there's a, a faster pace of kind of innovation and adoption in China by creating this massive availability of on-demand cooking. And then I think that there's generally kind of a broader technology adoption where convenience and price matter more. I think it goes back to my first point. Over in the U.S., we have uh, you know, greater focus on kind of brand and storytelling. And the, 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 we're, we're a real middle-class country. Um, there's a big push for kind of these stories around organic and I want to eat healthy for, and I want to eat sustainably. And like those end up becoming big priorities and big drivers for the macro trends, whereas price and convenience are still kind of the primary drivers in, uh, in China and, and other emerging markets. Is your hope then that um, Eats' technology will be used in you know high quality restaurants to bring the price down so that consumers have choices other than unhealthy fast food. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are trade offs today, right? So today, in order to make food that in order to make a four dollar fast food meal, we make trade offs on nutrition, right? We 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 create empty calories. They're 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 lacking in nutrients, and they're lacking in quality, and it's just very very cheap. It's canola oil and potatoes, or you know, ground beef fed corn and water. Um, and so th- that ends up being a very kind of low nutrient profile, but cheaper alternative. And that's why we're able to offer cheap calories here in the U.S. is we've made those trade-offs. But um, a, big, a big chunk of the cost inherent um, in those delivery systems is labor um, and is real estate. And so if you can reduce the amount of real estate needed and you can reduce the number of human hours needed to produce that food, uh, you can actually, instead of making that trade-off, for you know lower value calories or less sustainable calories, you can actually deliver more sustainable, uh, more nutritious calories at a lower cost using technology to flip that equation. So generally, I think that's the opportunity is to use technology to bring more nutritious, more sustainable calories to more people. So if you could sum up the mission of the production board in a few words, how would you do that? Because just from where I am, it, it seems that like you want to take a whole systems approach. You're looking at the whole consumer experience with their food, how it's grown, the nutritional profile, the health profile. We've been we've been debating our mission statement internally <laughs> here at the production board over the last week. I wanted to make it, you know, very kind of simple, coherent, but it sounded a little too much like an episode of Silicon Valley, uh, according <laughs> to uh, to my colleagues. Uh, where you know to make to make Earth a viable place to sustain humanity, um, you know where that mission statement inherent in it is the concept that we have all the resources we need here on Earth for humanity to survive for an infinite number of generations. We have effectively infinite energy. We have effectively an infinite set of resources. At the end of the day, every piece of food we consume as humans comes right back out. Those atoms are. Um, are the same atoms that they went into us as. There's some chemical potential energy loss as molecules convert. But at the end of the day, the food system in general is just about converting molecules from one form to another, and we use energy to do that. So how can we do that conversion with less energy, with less time, more efficiently, with less damage to the planet to hit the target objectives that we might have? So it's, um, it's possible and it's feasible, all the technologies all the tools that we need are here with us today. So we have a very optimistic perspective that humanity isn't going to fail and we need to get off this planet 
uh, we have a perspective that all the tools we need to help humanity thrive and succeed and scale and do all the things that we might dream of are available to us here today. And we just need to put them together and just need to do the work of engineering these systems to be more efficient, more effective, more sustainable, more healthy. And uh, these tools will allow us to do that. Um, and so, you know, we kind of take a systems level approach to thinking about species that we might have, where are their opportunities, where are their big market meets technology opportunities, where new technology trends can intersect with big market opportunities, and how can we engineer solutions there? Um, and that's kind of how we think about the, the problem set that, that we aim to tackle in our objectives. Yeah, okay. No, it sounds fantastic. Actually, one of my questions that I have been asking other people is, if you had a moonshot idea, what would it be? But that sounds like a fantastic, uh, as you say, hopefully realistic moonshot idea. So I, I don't think I need to... Um, to ask you that question, it's very inspiring. But I'm, we're, 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 you know, we're we're open to ideas for a better mission statement. So, you know, so we sound like like, like a Silicon Valley episode. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, my 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 moonshot idea is completely unoriginal. My moonshot idea is to have the Star Trek the Star Trek replicator available on everyone's desktop. Because the Star Trek replicator, if you think about it, it's like the perfect invention. It sums up all of the problems we have in humanity and creates one elegant solution. You just take a bunch of atoms and you use an infinitely renewable energy source to rearrange them instantaneously in front of you and you get exactly what you want out of this box. You know, Captain Picard, if you ever watch Star Trek Next Generation, just walks up to the machine and says, Earl Grey, extra hot, and out comes his tea. And those molecules are made right on demand using an infinitely resupplyable energy source and boom, he's got it. And I think, you know, if humanity can, and there's an episode in Star Trek also where they talk about how, you know, the economics and the goals of humanity are quite different than they were when we didn't have access to this capability. Um, and I do think that it is a profound capability and every kind of set of tools that, that we might kind of engineer or build a company around is one step or one iteration towards, you know, that, that sort of notion. Um, and so that, that to me is kind of the, <laughs> the dream project. If, if you can actually deliver that, you change the course of everything. Wow. Well, I'll speak to you in... 20 years and find out if maybe that's yeah. what your your next project is <laughs> um but just one more um you know a few more questions just a, a lot of our um listen there's, 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 there's a lot of technically in, infeasible suppositions behind that concept in star trek just so you know so you know there's not a, there's no there's no passive feasibility there but it is a it is a grand concept Anyway, um, so. so a lot of our reader base and our listener base are entrepreneurs in this industry. And it's, um, you know, as you know, it's still a relatively young industry. So it's not often I get a chance to speak to someone who had such a successful exit. Um, so thinking about advice that you would give to ag tech startups, perhaps you can talk about some of the, you know, the challenges around building a startup in ag tech and how you think um, entrepreneurs today could, could get around those. Well, I think that the you know, one of the biggest predictors of success is um, a velocity of decision-making. Uh, I, I, think, I think the pace of decision-making or the pace of iteration is, is much more important than the accuracy of decision-making. Um, you don't need to be right on each step. You just need to be changing what you're doing towards your kind of ultimate end goal. The faster you can kind of make changes. Um, and and by, by the way, at the end of a, a week or a month or a quarter or a year, you could wake up and your business could look completely different than it did when it started. You know, Weatherbill certainly is not 
at all what Climate Corporation ended up, you know, the concept for Weather Bill is not what Climate Corporation ended up becoming. And I think the same is true for a lot of successful entrepreneurial ventures is you have to adapt as you learn and adapt quickly and evolve. Um, and the challenge with agriculture, especially if you're selling into farming and you're selling into a seasonal cycle, is you have to wait a season. If you only have one opportunity or one bite of the apple per season, you have a much slower ability to innovate and kind of iterate. Um, you've got, uh, um, you know, let's say you're selling a, a seed prescription software, you know, a seed prescription tool. You're only going to have one sales cycle to sell that seed, and then you've got to wait a whole other year before you can do it again. Whereas in consumer markets online, right, you can test your photo sharing app. Things aren't working. You can change the feature tomorrow. You can push it to production. And the next week you've got a new feature and you can test that one and you can keep iterating and iterating to success. But uh, in a lot of agricultural endeavors, if you're selling into farming, you've got this kind of earth circling the sun with its tilt axis. And so you've got a problem that you can only sell at certain times of the year and you can only measure value at certain times of the year. And so you, you can't iterate as quickly. Um, so finding ways to avoid, um, you know, that kind of uh, um, structure, I think, is, is really important for success. Uh, finding ways that you're not stuck to the seasonal cycle where you can only iterate once a year and you, you, you miss a feature by a week and you've missed the whole year, et cetera. Um, so that's certainly important. I think keeping up your pace of iteration and not being stuck to your original idea of a business concept, but having a mission that is a North star, you know, think about the North star sits in the, above the horizon in the sky. You'll never actually reach it. You're just walking down a path. And so you have to have a consistent mission, but you can take many paths to walk uh, towards that mission and you can figure out what the right path to take is as you evolve the business. Uh, so not being stuck to one business concept, but really evolving as you learn what's working and what's not and very quickly making decisions as painful as they may be um, is important. Great. That's great advice. Well, I mean, I do have a hundred million other questions I could ask you, but I just have a quick, fun, hot or rot, um, not round that I like to do with you. Um, so I'm going to mention some food trends and you tell me if you think, in your opinion, that they're hot or not. Okay. Okay. So we'll start with fermented foods. What does that mean? Like, like kimchi or using fermentation yes, to make exactly. molecules? Oh, like, oh wow! I was thinking more like kimchi. Oh yeah, no, I think um, I think it's hot. Yeah, there's definitely um, value in these, uh, you know, gut biome organisms. We we don't yet know which ones survive where and why and how and what prebiotics need to be and so on. But I do think like having more fermented than less is is, is an obvious good thing. So uh, certainly hot meal kits. Um, yeah, I would say not. I would say not. I think the unit economics of on-demand food production are starting to, as you've seen with Elume and Meituan in China, can feasibly beat meal kits. And that's, uh, that's profound. It means that, you know, why not just have the whole meal made for you and delivered to you? I think there's an experiential aspect to meal kits that people might enjoy, but that's not uh, as that, that's 1% of the market opportunity of just feeding people. I think people would rather buy food that's completely made on demand 99% mm. of the time or 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. So I'd say not. Insects for human food? No, not. It's been tried for 30, 40 years. There's a variety of reasons. I think it, it always has a resurgence. You can look in the New York Times archives going back 40 years, and this has been a, a, a concept for many years. I, I'd say not. Alcohol-free drinks? 
which I realise now when I say it, obviously there's plenty of them, but there's a trend around creating a drink that you might buy in a bar that um, has, does not have alcohol but will give you that same experience. Yeah, that's cool. I like that's hot. Yeah, that's 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 a good concept. I do know that there's in developed markets like uh, people consume less alcohol as their incomes go up, and there's certainly a idea around creating social space that's not alcohol centric. And I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And then another one I had, but I think I know your answer to this is robotic cafes. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there's there's a bit of a misnomer with the robotic being the central point as opposed to being the elegant behind-the-scenes solution that just achieves the objective. I don't think consumers are going to be that enthralled with watching robotic arms make their food. Uh, I think they care about price, speed, and taste. So if you can beat on price, speed, and taste using automation in the back of the house, that's hot. If you're building a, an arm that people stare at to watch it make your food three times as long and it costs twice as much, it's not hot. Great. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for sharing all of your insights. Yeah, you as well. It's been great. I appreciate it. Happy to chat anytime. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Music by Blue Dot Sessions.